Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Work. The Work is a podcast that I do with my longtime friend and colleague, John Sumser. And today we are speaking with Anoop Gupta. Anoop is the co-founder and CEO of Seek Out. And Seek Out, of course, has a very strong foothold in the AI space. So John is especially interested in chatting with Anoop today. Anoop, welcome to the work. Please tell our listeners a bit about your background and what has brought you here today. Thank you, Jean. Uh, it's wonderful to be here and along with John. So my background, I'm a geek and an entrepreneur. I'll quickly go to my history and then more about SeekUp. So I came to the country in 1980. I got my PhD in computer science at Carnegie Mellon. In fact, uh, you know, one my PhD advisor was Alan Newell, who is one of the founders of artificial intelligence. It used to be done in a, uh, you know, different way. Jeff Hinton who later went to Google and who's kind of father of a lot of the generative AI, was on the faculty at Carnegie Mellon and got to know him really well. Uh, in 1987, I went to Stanford University as a professor and uh, clearly Andrew Ng and lots of AI work there, though I focused on high-performance computing. So if you think of NVIDIA and the underlying infrastructure, I spent a lot of time on those kinds of projects. Uh, then I did my first startup in 95, which was in the streaming media business, which was the very early days of the internet, which was acquired by Microsoft in 97. And then I had a wonderful and diverse journey at Microsoft from natural user interfaces, directly reporting to Bill Gates uh, as his TA running Skype and exchange businesses, global technology policy, you know, which is very interesting in what is happening with AI today, because uh, I always felt, uh, and it was important to Microsoft too, not just as a way to, you know, drive your own business, that we get better decisions for the world when our politicians, when the decisions maker have a deeper, better understanding of what is happening in technology. So I got a chance to do that, variety of other things. And then in 2015, late, we formed SeekOut. And, you know, SeekOut is in the talent business, both on the recruitment side and on, you know, how talent, internal talent, you know, how do you retain, grow, develop, redeploy, and how do people find fulfillment? Right. Means eventually it is about our saying is, you know, companies and people, great companies and people grow together. Great companies cannot exist about great people. You know, people are the asset and people can't really thrive if the companies are going down. So it is mutually tied together that we have great companies and great people you know, growing together. So that's our mission and we support that. And, you know, Gen AI, we believe will have a transformational effect on this. And I will get into that later. But uh, John, sorry for taking too long in the introduction, but excited to be with you here today. 
Oh, and I know John has lots of questions about the AI discussion. I want to put a pin in your policy reference and come back to that. John, I'm going to turn the floor over to you since this is clearly your sweet spot. Oh, let's talk about policy first, because because Anoop and I are liable to run out the clock, and so and so so let's get the, let's let's talk about policy. Don't yeah, you. I'm I'm fascinated by this. You know, we um, I I I work obviously in the public relations world, and uh, and that enables me to touch a lot of organizations, including lobbyists. And it's very interesting what goes on in the policy space and what is taking place without most of our knowledge. So so Anoop, when you look at creating policy to I'll use the word govern, but let's say guide, something as transformative as AI, who should be part of that policy discussion? Who's on that committee per se? Saying that it's really important because the impact is so large, uh, I think it is important to have the people creating the technology be there, both the companies and the individuals who are really deep. And I think it is really important to have, um, you know, of course, the government officials, but people who are going to be impacted, the social scientists, mm -hmm. uh, you, you, you know, that are there and representatives of our society and of different segments of our society and international and global, right? So there are so many stakeholders in this case at this point in time. At the same time, I think we need to be thoughtful about who you have in the kitchen, because if you have a very wide kitchen, often nothing can happen. So it's not that you don't mm -hmm. inform, I believe, but how you inform, who you inform, uh, and what is the discussion you have is really important, because it is too easy to get too hyped, it's too easy you know, to get too scared. It is difficult offer to understand what we don't understand uh, oftentimes mm -hmm. in these cases because things are changing so rapidly. So I think it, it has to be a broad segment for something like what is happening with generative AI. It's a fascinating topic. John, jump in please. Anoop has said the magic words. Generative AI. Well, well. So I want to <clears throat> dig below generative AI because 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 um, you might imagine. So so when I look out at the at the HR technology vendor space, I can't find anybody who's not claiming to have a generative AI solution on the table or in process. There's a lot of smoke being blown <laughs> around about what can happen and what can ha can't happen. Um, and it's, it's my view that, that a year from now or 18 months from now, we'll look back and it'll look like a bunch of twisted wreckage. Um, um, not that generative AI won't be transformative, but the hype... Um, um, overlooks the error rates. And one of the things that we don't know how to do yet, as far as I can tell, is measure 
understand or account for the error rates that are implicit in the use of generative AI. And while you can exert some control over the input, and you can try to solve quality by having good control over the input, most people aren't really actually looking at that. And so you end up with an output that's variable in ways that, um, because this is human resources technology, it's variable in ways that could damage my mother um, or your wife or my kid. Um, and if you brush that off as a statistical problem, um, you miss the humanness in HR technology, right? And so, so we've got this big bluster um, with zero control over error rates and zero capacity to measure or articulate the error rates. How do we solve that? Okay, uh, I think it's a deep question. So let's uh, parse it. <clears throat> so one of the Good. things that you know, I would say, so when you have a human assistant or person, you know, they are not error free either. Okay. Let me stop you right. Let me stop you right there. Let me yeah. stop you right there. That's the kind of bullshit the technologists always say. Oh. And and this is a machine. This is not a person that we're talking about. This is yeah. a governable factory machine. Yes. And to compare it to a person and hold oh. it to the standards of a person oh. is bogus. Okay. okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> deep breath, everyone. Deep breath. Yes, yes deep breath. <laughs> no, it is wonderful. Because what I'm saying is the first basic principle from our side, we say human-driven AI assistant. So where I was going with the assistant was, Errors happen in lots of places in the process. It is really important that a human be there eventually who is feeling accountable. I will go on a total tangent for a second, John. Oh, please do. Please do. To give you an analogy. So here is the challenge. It's not that human drivers don't have accidents. They don't kill people while driving, you know, drunk driving. Lots of things happen. We live with it in some sense, and we have made rules around it. When the Tesla car autopilot makes a bad decision and somebody is hurt, you know, we are suddenly very, very concerned, and rightfully so. I think there is a difference in the outlook and why we do. And the reason is we have laws written about when humans do you know, bad things, you know, they are drunk and they drive and they hurt somebody. When a Tesla car, you know, goes and hurts something because there was something wrong in the software and design, the question becomes who has accountability? Are you going to put Elon Musk? Uh, you know, are you going to put Tesla and charge them a billion dollars, you know, because they're wrongful? Our social systems, our legal systems are not built for accountability when machines make an error. So I want to separate out those sides. And that's why if you put the human absolutely in the loop, you have accountability. You know, uh, if your finances are wrong for a corporation, you know, you don't say I'm going to blame Excel. You say you are the human who is accountable. You know, if your formulas were wrong, 
So I think there is a element about where we need to keep human and not only for the accountability reason, actually there are lots of good reasons to go and do that. So that is one part of it. The second thing I would say is um, generative AI can help in the following. So, so when you're trying to understand a resume, there are some phrases you have, you know, they know digital marketing, social marketing have done, you know, sales, enterprise sales have no job. When a recruiter is looking at it, when a hiring manager is looking at it, they don't look at those phrases. They look at the English language surrounding it to say, this is the experience I had. I had a team built. We designed this. It's used by a million people. We look at the English text around it, right? And we match based on that English text. Today, machines can't do that. In the future, I believe machines will be able to do a much better match between the uh, you know English and to machines. The code is the same as the you know English language or French or whatever else code is just another language. So we can become better at doing everything and suggesting a met a mentor, suggesting a learning course, uh, suggesting you know a job or a gig because we can do the match in a much we understand people better, we understand job description better, we understand everything better. And we can do matching in those richer ways. We can understand teams better. What does a team do? So I think fundamentally, the fundamental change that's going to happen is we will have a better understanding of this wonderful complex entity that a human being is. Okay, And we will be able to do better suggestions, better recommendations okay, for things which must be then viewed by a human. You say, you know, evidence, what is it? Show it to me. I, you know, I'm going to look at it myself. But a person often in many cases won't be able to read the code, won't be able to understand it, won't be able to do a lot of things. And we can provide evidence and we can say, here are the artifacts. And then a human may want to look at the artifacts to make sure better things happen. So, so, so those are both powerful arguments. Let me let me walk you through the batching argument um, <clears throat> uh, because the accountability argument is uh, the 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 case you made doesn't really account for human nature. Um, um, and in the matching case, the the example that I love is what distinguishes one nurse from another nurse at the fundamental is whether or not they are good at giving shots. Um, and you can look through all of the nursing resumes you can find, and you won't find a single nursing resume that says good at giving shots. <laughs> um, you won't find it. And so what, what most sorting and sifting processes do, what AI tends to do is take the huge volume of stuff and winnow it down. But if it can't tell that what makes a good nurse or a bad nurse in a particular setting is their capacity to give shots, 
which you can glean from their history, um, uh, they get sifted out because the words on the page don't indicate the things that are actually being looked for in the job. And so the biggest concern that I have about matching and the theory that it can all be found in language um, is that key elements just are going to get overlooked because they don't appear in language. Um, and you end up with a selection process that eliminates really, really good solid candidates because it's not possible to understand what they're good at by reading the language that they propose or a job description that somebody writes about them because the things that make a person great at their job are generally you don't talk about them because everybody knows it. Uh, let, me, um, uh, let me ask you to dig in a little bit deeper, John. Okay. You think that information shows up in anywhere in any form. So that was my question. You know, it could be <laughs> a performance review or somewhere or the discussion feedback, you know, quarterly discussions that the nurse and her manager have. Could it be there in feedback that a patient writes for her? And again, you have to treat all this information very carefully. There are privacy aspects, lots of aspects. But I'm trying to think about, actually curious about where does this information come from when you're trying to make a hiring decision or say, you know, hey, we want to promote you to be a manager? Where does that information go? What form does that take? In the case of developers, it might be actually in their code. In some of the cases, you know, they wrote that code, whatever they did it. And I'm wondering in other cases where it is in the language. In the case of a salesperson, might be in a record which is in Salesforce or somewhere else and what they did and feedback. So the integrative possibilities of taking in a lot more information and helping people is, you know, certainly something to be looked at. Oh, yeah, I, I, I think it's possible to imagine building systems that are smart enough to ferret this out. I'm, I'm not saying that it is completely impossible ever. Yeah. But between now and Nirvana, um, <laughs> where we have um, steampunk technology rather than ideal technology, and bad decisions get made because the technology is less effective than advertised, let's say. Um, um, there's, a, there's a social price to pay and there's a business price to pay. That's also going to be very, very difficult to detect. Um, and and, and I, I get concerned that we will have a classification system that doesn't actually know what it's doing on our way to getting to the perfect system that can consume all data and make all sorts of interesting nuanced judgments. So actually, I'm going to take you in a slightly different direction. We can come back to this. And so okay. there are, with the technology, there are easy cases and there are hard cases. And my fault, I think I went into some of the harder cases uh, that are there. As you know, you know, we ship seek out the says uh, that does two things. One is you give us a job description and 
and uh, you know we can automatically form great searches for you. We do have you know recruiters all with different kinds of strengths. Some can do boolean, some can't do boolean, some don't know how to do a great search, but are amazing conversationalists in you know saying why this company is interesting to you. So you know we can help. Those are the things. The second thing is. Uh, you know, messaging is a very hard part. And, you know, so creating very nice, relevant, specific, personalized messages, uh, you know, Gen AI can really help you with, uh, you know, those tasks, having a conversational interface, English language. I was at a Microsoft alumni meeting and one of the technical fellows at Microsoft was going. And what she was saying is suddenly for the productivity systems, you know, Microsoft was in the document space. We are moving from documents to dialogue, right? So the main activity and the main way to think about it, okay, is this transition to conversation and capturing and meeting summarization. You know, you just did an A, imagine, you know, the simpler uses that, that I can talk about, which are less contribute. You just spent an hour, uh, you know, talking to a candidate and you want to send a summary to the hiring manager why you like them. It's a very hard thing to write it down. And if you get an initial draft of a summary, you know, of the conversation from these uh, technologies. You know, one of my very close colleagues is now the chief technology officer at Zoom. Many of my friends are, you know, the chief scientists and things at Microsoft now, ex-colleagues. So there is a lot of applications being looked at where it is helpful. And I'll give you an example. It's a very personal um, example. So yesterday uh, was Microsoft Alumni Summit. They were around you know, 600 plus people physically attending. And I was giving a talk on culture, workforce culture, my journey to move from head to heart. And I talked about gratitude and how that has transformed. You know, all, each and every one of our all hands meetings starts with 15 minutes of gratitude where people and um, so I was struggling with actually how to begin the talk and thing. I had written an article before, so I gave it to Chad GPT. I said, how should I start <laughs> my, my conversation? And it came up with the idea, I know this is what you should do. Ask everyone for the first two, three minutes, ask everyone to close their eyes. Think for a minute of something they are grateful for in this last week open the eyes, have a conversation with their neighbor. And I actually did that. Okay. And later people came up. It changed the energy, changed the, you know, where the people were coming from because our mindset makes a difference. This was a suggestion from Chad GPT, seriously, right? So the thing is, if you can fit as an assistant, when I was going with the assistant in the beginning, and you can use this as somebody, you know, which has a lot of world knowledge. If I'm going and looking up an industry or a candidate or something, I can do research much easier, much more deeply. 
And I have to be smart. So, you know, what we have to teach students in the, you know, when the internet came, we said, how do you become a judge of what is bogus and what is not, right? How do you understand the quality of the source? How do you understand the quality of the results? Otherwise, you'll get fed all kinds of things. I think similarly, now with generative AI, the bar has gotten higher. And as both adults and as students, we need to learn where what is good, what is not, and that judgment will matter even more. But we shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater in some sense, or the, whichever way it goes, uh, to you know not leverage the technology, not appreciate what it can offer. So, so I, I find it interesting that that when you have a critique about the technology, technologists always assume that it's a binary critique, that the answer is either do it or don't do it, and that that somehow that's that's what's at stake. When um, my question is, you just laid it out perfectly. The stuff is amazing. The stuff is transformative. The stuff is is magic. And the stuff takes away the heart of a lot of things that people with white collar jobs do. Takes away, it, it eats out the heart and says, what you need to be good at is asking the right question and editing the answer. But the people who are great white collar workers are not good at either of those good things. They're good at the stuff that ChatGPT does. And so when you put the tool in front of them and you say, oh, this is simple, all you got to do is edit the answer. Um, you forget that we live in a world where people have bosses. And so if the machine says it's green and I go to my boss and I say, look, it's perfectly clear that it's red. Um, we have to disagree with the machine. I will have to justify that every single time I want to disagree with the machine. And eventually I'll get tired of going to my boss to justify the fact that I disagree with my machine. And I will be just like a Tesla driver. Yeah, but how is this and different? How is this different than going to Google and Bing and, you know, asking a question? I mean, we have an entire generation that's come up through the ranks that that doesn't, you know, I'm the, really going to date. I'm going to date myself the, and say, you know, we used to like sit with a uh, a volume of the encyclopedia and just randomly be reading things about places, you know, Madagascar or someplace. Like if I don't know to go and ask that question, you know that that's what I'm not. I'm not connecting these dots. Here. So, 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 so the difference is. You can ask about Madagascar all night and all day. It's not a judgment about a person. It's not a judgment about a person. And when you apply this technology to making judgments about people, and you don't have a grasp of the depth of those judgments, um, you're creating systems that contain biases that you can't control. And that's that's mm. that's all I'm saying. And it's a caution. Yeah. It's not a it's not a don't go there because there's monsters there. It's a why isn't this the first question that's being answered? Um, um rather than the glories of the technology and how transformative it is, let's look at 
the actual work that comes out of this that people have to do and whether or not they're equipped to do it and how we get them equipped to do it, right? So we talk about a human-machine partnership, but like business has done a lot over the last hundred years, we ignore the training that's necessary to get people to pay attention in very, very different ways than they used to have to pay attention. So, John, I agree with you. I think just like, as Gene was saying, when search engines came out, people had to learn. And I'll tell you, there are good searchers and bad searchers in finding answers. <laughs> yes, there are. Yes, there yes are. indeed. <laughs> you know, yes, indeed. And similarly with this technology, you know, how to ask the question, how to have it generate an explanation. Why do you think so? Explain your reasoning and do it you know, recursively, whatever you do. And the technology is still in its infancy. The interesting thing is, you know, it is changing all the time. We thought it just mechanically regurgitated the next word and somehow it made sense. And frankly, a lot of the deepest people who created the technology are totally surprised by what it can do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Listen, I know we're a little tight on time, and there's one more thing I'd like to to bring to the please, forefront please of our discussion. Uh, you know, uh, listen, all of our careers, we have watched technology as, as being game-changing. And I think one of the the uh, paradigm shifts that I'm very excited about right now is this move to skills based labor models, and and Anoop, I know your company is is has an offering uh, a seek out assist um, that that is is integral uh, to this particular movement. Can we talk? Is this for real? I mean, do we think that you know five years from now we're we're going to be uh, ditching the resume and talking about skills instead? Let Let's touch on that for a few moments. So, you know, our the first thing I would say I think there's confusion about skills. A lot of people talk about skills and not, uh, you know, it's the buzzword that that is there. Uh, also, skills have existed for time long before the current thing and the emphasis on skills, and it is not that skills are not there. The thing I like to emphasize is often the way people talk about skills, the two-word, three-word, one-word phrases that are there are just labels. What goes behind that is what are your experiences? What did you do? With that, what are the results and capabilities you um, achieved is the important part, right? So when you say, oh, you know, you, do you have leadership skills? What the heck does that mean, right? <laughs> you know, what it means for leading a team of five people to, a, to leading a team of 100 people to leading 100,000 people are very different things. You know, scale matters, experience matters, the nuance matters. So I think what is important in the approach when we think about skills is bringing that nuance to bear along with skills. And so if you say, you know, somebody knows machine learning, what do you know? What can you do? Because the machine learning you need to build a chatbot is different to build the infrastructure that NVIDIA will, is building or this thing is different than 
what Seekout needs to do with it. They are all very different and nuanced. And what we believe and the infrastructure we are building is letting you understand those nuances in your reasoning. It is about having a dynamic, instead of fixed ontology of, you know, here are 30,000 skills, I think Workday has that or something like that. It is a much more dynamic. In some places, you need to go into much more detail, add a lot beyond what any of these, even with 30,000 things can add. And in some cases, subtract and give color to what these phrases really mean in the context of the company and the work being done. Uh, so, you know, if um, AMD says, I want to be like NVIDIA, right? I mean, oh, they're a billion dollar valuation. We are here. What do we do? What are the kinds of engineers we need? You don't say, you know, I need engineers with firmware. And you want to say, I want engineers who know how to translate machine learning algorithms into firmware best in terms of the chips we are doing and how do we want to do the chips. That's not a skill in any taxonomy, I can assure you, that anybody. Yeah, does. yeah. That's a very interesting point you've made, Anoop. John, did you want to weigh in on that? Only if we have another hour, because it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a supremely interesting rabbit hole. It's a supremely it interesting it rabbit is. hole. And the, um, the, the, um, the balance between a structured taxonomy yes. and a um, dynamic ontology, um, again, this is one of those arguments where, where uh, people tend to treat it as binary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reality is there's truth in both places, and you sort of need a, I believe, you need a model that starts with structure, that's sort of the ice cream cone, and then has dynamic capacity, that's the ice cream that goes in the cone, in order to get the most optimal results out of a skills-oriented system. There isn't anybody I'm seeing who understands that exactly yet. The the uh, the emphasis in AI these days is on the power of discovering relationships inside of the data, um, and the older school view of AI, which is that you need structure on which to build that, um, and you don't get repeatable results unless you have structure in place. Um, is quiet right now. But once, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, I said there's a crash coming, and the crash is going to come because the error rates will be out of control, and there'll be, there'll be Tesla-style crashes all over our industry, um, and we'll pull back. And at the moment that we pull back, we'll start talking about how do you blend structure with dynamic tools to get a more fully-fledged answer. Yes. So, well, partly, John, I... Again, I agree with you that <clears throat> you don't throw away structure because you need to be dynamic uh, in terms of that. You know, even if you look at human vocabulary, we are continuously adding words. We are continuously adding, you know, it is not static. It is not in an unchanging world. And how do you, when you even add something, right? The way the humans understand is 
when we take something new, we connect it to a lot of the existing things that we and models and things we already understand and know. Similarly, when you get one of the new skills, you know, internally, you know, for example, Andromeda is a system at Google that helps you manage large numbers of virtual machines or, you know, networking. If you just add and you describe the skill, right, can it automatically connect it to everything else that is related? You still refer to it as Andromeda. We believe actually a lot of also in terms of custom things, because when you're looking for people inside the company, you might say, if they've worked on Andromeda, I know a lot of things about that, right? And so these can't be static that, you know, any company says, here's your 30,000. We believe extensibility is important. We believe dynamic connection is important. And we believe that the technology is there to build that. And that is where we are going with it. Now, sometimes we call it beyond skills. Sometimes we call it a generative skills platform. And as you're saying, we believe it will be structured plus unstructured. But those people who get stuck with structure or just with correlation, I think that is going to be uh, not serve the clients and the customers as well as they might be believing because of the hyper on skills. You just, you just opened the door to an amazing conversation that we should have the next time we're together. Um, and that is the view that you just described is fantastic in large organizations. It's exactly fantastic in large organizations. Most organizations have fewer than 200 people in them, and a dynamic anything gets in the way of getting work done because it's more complicated than it needs to be. Um, and so, so I wonder if you're talking about scale differences that are so profound that they require radically different solutions to them. And that's 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 an interesting question for another day, I think. We're we're gonna give Anoop just one one quick moment to respond while we have him in uh in that thought. So I think that the dynamic, the, you know, the number of different kinds of skills you want to bring in, a 200-person organization. So if you look, say, you know, what to seek out is a 200-person organization that is there. And we might say, you know, understanding of resumes and how do you parse, you know, certain things is really important. So that could be a skill relevant to us. But it might be much more that the specific context for example, when you say social marketing, are you doing it for B2B businesses or are you doing it for B2C businesses? So there might be a variety of nuance that can be actually inferred based on what is needed. And so it gets customized a little, but it is simple. The goal is, again, the challenge and the opportunity for us is how do we make it simple? And Seek Out Assist is actually a pretty amazing example of where we have taken something the Gen AI, and just try to simplify it. I think we have landed on um, a key phrase that neatly encapsulates today's discussion, and that is challenges and opportunities. Uh, Anoop, we would like to have you come back in the future and uh, discuss, continue this conversation. Actually, I can see that you and John uh, could probably be locked in a room for several days and, and just create all kinds of wonderful things. Um, would you please tell us 
how our listeners can get in touch with you, Anoop, and uh, how they can learn more about Seek Out. So the, you know, you can go to our website and certainly seekout.com and connect with people. I always give people my own email, Anoop at seekout.com. So if you like to get in touch, you know, please send me and I will connect you to the right people or the right cases there. Talk to yourself. I love talking to customers, but that, those are the two ways, you know, and best, best ways to connect with us. Well, thank you so much for being our guest today. This is The Work Podcast. And my colleague, John Sumser, looks like he wants to add one more thing. So I'm going to turn the floor yeah, over yeah, to him. I just, to I, just, I, just want, I just want to say thank you, Anu. This was, a, this was a rich, nuanced conversation with real points of view in it. And that doesn't always happen when we talk to people who are in the industry. Uh, and so, and so thanks, thanks for, thanks for being willing to go at it a little bit. I really appreciate that. Thank you, John. It is always a pleasure and insightful to talk to you. Thank you.